In today's podcast, I'm talking with Beth Morrissey, co-founder of Kleeman International Consultants, the Washington-based global emerging financial markets specialists. Kleeman International is a pioneer independent analyst of emerging market banking and security markets. The group provides high-level strategic advisory services on emerging markets covering economic, banking, financial institutions, capital markets, policy, and sector trends from a global perspective. Prior to co-founding the firm in 1987, Beth worked for an international consulting firm in New York and research groups in Washington. She's frequently quoted in the media and a regular speaker at international conferences and seminars. With emerging and frontier markets accounting for the largest share of the world's population, land and mineral resources, I'm keen to discuss with a real expert the prospect of ESG investments in emerging markets. So welcome, Beth, to the ESG podcast. With part of the traditional argument for emerging markets investing being potential for faster growth, the growing middle class and younger population, let me start by asking Beth if you think that actually is the case. But first, let's be specific about this term emerging markets. What are we referring to? Well, the definition of emerging markets really depends on, on who you're talking to. Various public and private sector entities define emerging markets differently. The original and perhaps most common definition is the World Bank Atlas method which for the current fiscal year categorizes them as low, lower middle and upper middle income countries with, this is a mouthful, gross national income per capita below 12,535 US dollars in 2019. Many emerging markets investors really tend to def define them on, based on benchmark stock bond and currency indices. Although here again, the definitions vary. For example, despite their wealth, Every country in the Middle East except Israel is defined as an emerging market in indices, largely due to lingering restrictions on foreign investment and low liquidity. Although, for example, Qatar's per capita GNI is over $61,000. As well, heavyweight, more developed tech giants like South Korea are still defined as emerging, although their per capita GNI is nearly $34,000. In terms of the traditional argument, yes, faster growth, growth, growing middle class and younger populations are really still the key underlying theses. In fact, the IMF and the, the um, World Economic Outlook released last week projects that emerging economies will expand by 6.7 and 5% this year and next, much faster than advanced economies estimated at 5.1 and 3.6. With China and South Korea perhaps as the major exceptions in the emerging market universe. Populations are significantly younger than in advanced economies, particularly when you look at say Japan or Germany. Globally, both in emerging and developed markets, it really is the younger populations, the so-called, I don't know, millennials, Generation Z, um, who are actively embracing ESG as they see the devastating effects of climate change and are really looking at social inequalities today. Well, you, you mentioned the very reason that the ESG Foundation was started um, in 2020. And, and that was the premise that basically Generation Z or Z um, and millennials just won't tolerate working for any organization that doesn't take ESG at its heart. Um, so, you know, what you're saying is quite refreshing, particularly um, in, in terms of, you know, where we go from here. Um, but let me ask another question. Um, 
which is several emerging market countries, sovereign funds, have sold green bonds and some investors have accused those governments of greenwashing. So, for example, Poland, I understand, issued a green bond, and yet many analysts and investors said that it's the only EU country to refuse to sign up to the EU's 2050 zero carbon emissions commitments. So isn't the challenge of ESG investing in emerging markets far more difficult than in developed ones? Yeah, we definitely believe that the challenge of ESG investing is far more difficult in emerging markets. Pre-COVID, many emerging markets investors actively embraced the E part of ESG. But now that social and governance elements have really really been embraced globally, um, they're far more difficult to find and analyze in most emerging markets. I mean, face it, the pandemic has focused global investor attention on issues like healthcare and food security. Companies and governments in emerging markets aren't legally required to disclose as much ESG data as perhaps in developed markets. And what is offered is often um, I guess the word would, might be confusing to foreign investors. In smaller, the so-called frontier markets in particular, the scarcity of data is often compounded by, I mean, really a lack of experience in, of these corporates dealing with minority investors. I was thinking that the focus on the, the environment is, is critical in emerging markets. I mean, it's yeah, it's all you can read about, really. But let's try and, and focus a little bit on the S and the G. The environment, of course, is easier to measure in the, in, the, in the use of quantitative targets, you know, because you've got CO2 emissions that you can measure, um, impact on the environment, all, all these things, you know. But with greater emphasis being placed on social impact and also good corporate governance, how do emerging markets think about actually measuring, uh, being measured um, to those factors, because there's not sufficient data is there for us to actually make any rational decisions. Well, first of all, I'm not sure how well the S and G are being measured in any market in the world right now. I know this sounds like a total cliche, but seriously, having one woman and one person of color on your board should not raise your government score. That's a good point. I think as the world assesses the changes brought on by COVID and the rising awareness of inequality, Investors globally, or not just in emerging markets, are really needing to add a whole new category to their sort of basic decision-making list. I think perhaps the S is easier to figure out for both sovereigns and corporates and includes some really basic issues you can look at like labor standards and work, workplace health and safety, which definitely took on more importance over the past year. In fact, in the early days of emerging markets investing, I'm talking late 80s, early 1990s, um, we regularly advise clients to also assess basic social issues like poverty and education, which you know definitely fall under the S category. Governance rules, including defining the rights and responsibilities between di different stakeholders, including not only the board and C-suite, but also workers and minority investors. For the S&G, as with the environmental standards in emerging markets, I would actually argue it's more important to determine the tra trajectory of either the country or the company, rather than taking a snapshot of where they are today. 
that's an interesting point. And it, it raises the question I have now about, um, I'm going to call it the sea country, but what I was going to say was China. Um, China, of course, you know, second largest economy in the world now, soon probably to overtake um, the US. And yet it's come from seemingly nowhere in the last 10, 20 years. Um, you know, it accounts for nearly half of the emerging market index now and is publicly committed to being net zero carbon by 2060. Um, and yet currently, this economic development, for want of a better phrase, relies on coal for 57% of its energy and, and it consumes half of the world's coal. So how, you know, where does that leave us when we're looking at China's um, ESG metrics? When you're looking at it, in addition, China's still building coal plants. Um, and it's interesting, earlier this year, as its economic and diplomatic relations with Australia were deteriorating, China refused something like 70 ships that were carrying Australian coal, which actually led to widespread power blackouts on the mainland. Um, some investors have also cited 2019 when all of a sudden these wonderful subs subsidies for electric vehicles were simply cut without any warning. And electric vehicles along with you know, solar were areas where China was really leading the global race for environmental change. I mean, not to sound like a cynic, but to me, the question is whether China can continue to grow deleverage the economy and work toward carbon neutrality at the same time. I mean, can you really do all these things together? Or is this 2060 simply an empty public relations promise? Well, having, having read the, um, the Dasgupta uh, report, um, the 610 page treatise on yeah. how, how do you account for the commercial value of nature? I don't think we've even got to 2060. Um, as, a, as a potential benchmark to be a carbon neutral. Um, so it's not a question of how will it, it's, it's got to um, you know, meet these commitments. And interestingly, I thought that China, I think I'm right, aren't I, that China has more nuclear power stations in it than anywhere than the rest of the world combined. So to answer your question, possibly the future's nuclear as far as China is concerned um, in, in terms of energy production. But there are lots of emerging countries, emerging market countries, and, and let's talk a little bit about um, another one. Um, many emerging markets have already begun to embrace ESG. Back in 2008, for example, Kenya, uh, the, the, the president, Kenya's president Kibaki launched Vision 2030 uh, to create a newly industrializing middle income country, providing high quality of life to all its citizens by 2030 um, in a clean and secure environment. Um, well, I've been there and it hasn't yet happened. Um, the efforts backed, of course, though, by the Sustainable Finance Initiative created by the Bankers Association. What do you think this means for Kenya and other developing nations when they make commitments like this? Can these markets re more easily embed ESG as a structural, ref you know, as structural reform and, and development continues? I actually think it's a distinct possibility. I mean, think about it how many emerging markets leapfrogged from the vast majority of the population never having had 
a landline telephone or a bank account, a formal bank account, and now they're paying directly with their mobile phones. In fact, I think Kenya is a great example. I remember I was there in 2009 and it was the first time I as an American had ever encountered anyone paying with a mobile phone. I mean, today, very few people in the Washington area at least pay with their mobile phones. So I think it pretty much could be the same with ESG. Again, it's gonna be the younger population that's going to not only more widely embrace ESG standards, but they're in a position to pressure their governments to change policy. And now that the IMF, the World Bank, multilateral and bilateral lenders are, are finally really focusing in on the importance of ESG and in the pandemic era, particularly how many of these emerging and frontier countries are needing technical assistance from these institutions as well as funding to recover. So ESG benchmarks are gonna be embedded in lending programs. At the same time, like in Kenya, the domestic private sector is gonna to begin to insist on adaptation of ESG standards. For example, we're already seeing banks in, in some developed markets and even some emerging markets trying to figure out how to reduce their loan books for example, fossil fuel lending. You, you raised a great point earlier about technology. I grew up in Nigeria and um, they were telling me, a lot of my friends there were telling me about telephone banking um, long before we, we, we heard of the concept here in the UK. Um, so I think just because, you know, people see that, you know, the 50 odd countries of Africa are still emerging um, economically. Um, we, we, you, you do raise a good point that actually Kenya may yet um, startle and surprise everybody in the West. Um, for the way that the uh, the millennials and Generation Z basically won't accept any any state government that doesn't embrace ESG, um, I think we, we we were talking about technology. I mean, of course, technology and finance stocks make up the biggest weighting in ESG benchmark indices. Um, so after the pandemic, can I ask you what other stocks do you think look interesting in emerging markets to you? Tech and finance you know, are the obvious candidates because they have no need for things like fossil fuels. But I think there are other areas that are increasingly interesting and, and are going to take, you know, and already have perhaps taken center stage like healthcare and pharmaceuticals. Um, it's interesting. On average, emerging and frontier markets only allocate five or six percent of GDP to healthcare spending, while developed countries have an average of something around 14%. And I think, I mean, the pandemic really highlighted this gap. The other area I think is gonna take sort of center stage um, will be food safety and, and supply chains. And of course, supply chains, you know, it's really interesting, interesting to think about because, you know, we've seen them become bottled up in recent, in the, in the past year. And it will be interesting to see the, the sort of green and, and social embrace of this particular sector. Now, the sector focus was, was fascinating. Um, do you think that, maybe ask an extra question, are there any specific countries that perhaps we ought to be looking to um, as, as exemplars of ESG best practice? We, we had a, 
um, a colleague of ours um, from Pakistan on saying that at the moment ESG is, is, is being discussed, but she couldn't put hand on heart and say any of the, you know, the, the floated companies in, in Karachi um, were really embracing ESG as you know, at the heart of their, their strategies. Um, you mentioned Korea previously. Are there any other examples of um, develop, developing nations that you think that have got the ESG message? Well, I think we're we're certainly seeing seeing it take hold in um, in the UAE, for example. I mean, they, you know, a part of that is is the need to diversify their economy, um, but the other part of it is is they seem to be on board. Maybe not using the terms exactly, but certainly the development strategy that that they've been undertaking for several years on diversification of the economy has really is really trying to adhere to some of this ESG. Um, you know, governance has at listed companies is improving. They're they're far more far more open and transparent than they were. Uh, of course, the Middle East has been sitting on, you know, a pool of oil for the last um, well, millennia. So perhaps they might, it might be easier for them um, to, to, you know, emerge out of a fossil-based economy. What about um, the Far East or, or even South America? Any, any, any countries there that you'd particularly pick out as being ESG, not ESG friendly is not the right phrase, is it? But, you know, aware of their ESG commitments? I think South Korea and 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 Taiwan would fall into would fall into that category certainly in Asia and I don't think Latin America and the Caribbean right now are in any position to really be embracing it. I think it it's certainly on the discussion table. You know, certainly on the discussion table in in Brazil, which realizes that you know we've got to do something about the Amazon area. You know, we can't just keep killing all these trees. So it's, it's on the table, but it's not been fully embraced. But as I said, those countries that are having to access particularly IMF standby loans right now are going to be pushed in this direction. That, um, that comment about the Amazon made me, uh, reminded me of a sentence that's in the foreword of the, the, uh, the, 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 the Das Gupta report. Uh, David Attenborough makes the point that 94% um, of the land mass of the world is occupied by either humans or our agriculture or our mechanical um, enterprises. Only 4% of, of the land surface of the, of the world is now um, totally owned by, uh, occupied only by nature. Um, wow. Yeah, so um, yeah, Brazil's got a problem, but actually we've all got a problem with Brazil, I would suggest. Yes. <laughs> Let, let, let me ask another question, look, looking to the future, um, hopefully a little bit more optimistically. ESG funds have grown at more than double the rate of non-ESG funds globally over the past five years, with equity and bond ESG funds assets up 197% and 181% respectively. In your experience, do you think this is likely to continue or will this interest fade? No, I think ESG is 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 here to stay. Um, the growing importance of ESG also comes as greater attention is being focused on the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals that were set in 2015 and intended to be achieved by the end of this decade. And of course, the 17 goals include, you know, 
some of the base, most of the basics of ESG investing, like gender equality and clean water and sanitation and affordable and clean energy. I also think more importantly that ESG standards are gonna just continue to, to be defined and to evolve in the years to come. For example, during the worst of the um, COVID outbreak last summer, S&P Dow Jones indices started um, reviewing its sustainability benchmarks to include issues that had arisen since the outbreak of the pandemic, such as flexible work arrangements and firms' government, governance structures for handling sudden risks. I mean, while the bulk of ESG investing has you know, obviously been in, in the largest Asian markets, China, South Korea, Taiwan, um, you know, due to earlier containment of COVID and heavy index weights and, and fast growing tech companies, I think that investors are gonna to start to take more active roles and consider sovereign commitments and targets rather than just a snapshot of where it, you know, where a country or company is today. You know, does this, has this company embraced the concept of ESG and are, do they have strategic goals that they're trying to reach? Well, that was fascinating, and I could go on for another hour listening to you. Um, but that's all we've got the time for today. Um, thank you very much, Beth Morrissey, uh, for helping us consider the potential for ESG investments in emerging markets. It is clear that while it's far more challenging to create an ESG portfolio for them due to a scarcity of data and disclosure, it's increasingly possible to earn well by investing well. In the meantime, thank you, everyone, for listening. Do please look Beth up on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, she can also be contacted on there on the website, clemaninternational.com. Uh, and if you aren't doing so already, do please subscribe to the ESG Foundation's page on LinkedIn, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our ESG podcast channel on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts to hear a growing range now of um, interviews across the ESG spectrum. So once again, thank you, Beth, for talking to us today and hope you'll come back soon. Thanks, Clive.